Hi, I'm Yudi Bunyamin and welcome to The Neumann Talk, a podcast where I meet past winners of the Australian Mathematical Society's B.H. Neumann Prize to learn about their journeys through the world of mathematics. This episode's guest is Associate Professor Marcel Jackson. Marcel grew up in Tasmania and went on to earn his bachelor's degree from the University of Tasmania. His research interests are very broad, but predominantly lie in pure mathematics. Right after his PhD, Marcel moved to La Trobe University where he is still an academic to this day. He is also the research director and the director of graduate research for the School of Engineering and Mathematical Sciences. Marcel won the B.H. Norman Prize in 1997 while he was a PhD student at the University of Tasmania, working under the supervision of the late Peter Trotter. What do you remember of your Neumann talk, Marcel? Uh, I remember standing on the stage... (laughs) feeling simultaneously excited and nervous. (laughs) I mean, I remember the topic and I remember aspects of the room. So in terms of topic, uh, it was a talk in the area of semigroup theory. Uh, So semigroup theory is sort of the abstract algebraic understanding of associativity. So we know multiplication of numbers is associative, for example, but subtraction of numbers isn't associative. It really matters where you put the brackets in with subtraction, but not with multiplication. Um, so there's quite a big theory of associative structures, and that's what semigroup theory is, which is what the topic of my PhD theory was. So um, I talked on a, a a nice result, actually. I'm still quite pleased with this result um, in the world of semigroup theory, but also connected with um, algorithmic questions so which has been something I've continued along as well so it was an undecidability result so undecidability in this context means uh, sort of algorithmic questions which have no uh, algorithmic solution so might be some sort of computational task which is provably not solvable or not amenable to solution by way of an algorithm so these guys back go back to the start of the 20th century, I guess, with the work of people like Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing and Church and, and, and so on. So it was a basic question in semigroup theory that turns out to be um, undecidable. So it's not algorithmically solvable as to when something has a certain property. Um, I remember that Peter Hilton was in the audience. Um, so Peter Hilton was at Bletchley Park and um, I didn't know this at the time, but an interview with Gordon Preston from who was at Monash University, professor at Monash University for many years, uh, he indicated that um, there was quite a lot of semigroup theory discussed at Bletchley Park. A lot of the early figures in semigroup theory were at Bletchley Park, and um, along with Peter Hilton. And I don't know if that um, helped my Neumann talk, because I think Peter may have been on the committee, I'm not sure, but um, I wouldn't have known that at the time. But nevertheless, I remember seeing him in there in the audience and... Um, Probably made me a bit more nervous, but I think my talk itself just used transparencies. Um, I may have written a bit on the board because I usually like to mix a little bit um, of materials, but it wasn't really a standard thing at the time at all to use computer slides. In fact, probably computer projection wasn't available in 1997, I would say, not by default anyway. And certainly Beamer, which um, people use nowadays really didn't come into play until uh, well into the 2000s, maybe 2003, 2004. Yeah, so I think my talk involved a bit of strutting around the stage and <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll definitely talk a lot more about your research later. So, this conference was quite interesting because it was the first time that it was hosted in New Zealand since the Norman Prize was introduced. Do you remember why it was in New Zealand that year? I think that sporadically there are joint meetings between the Australian Math Society and the New Zealand Mathematics Society. 
Um, and this was one of those. So I know there's been one since, I think, in 2014, I think was a joint New Zealand and Australian Math Society. I could be wrong. So I, I think it was just by, by chance. It was, it was certainly um, a first for me as well because coming from Tasmania, uh, I guess it's a little bit more isolated, or at least it was at the time, um, we didn't really travel to conferences very much, so that was the one conference I really attended through my candidature. Um, it was actually the first time I'd really left Australia. I know it's only New Zealand, but um, so it's sort of only half not Australia, but it was slightly exciting. I hadn't even travelled interstate that many times at, the, at that point. So, yeah, it was quite an um, exciting um, adventure for me, actually. So it may have been an unusual first for the OSTMS as well to have the Norman Prize in New Zealand, but it was certainly a first for me as well. It was sort of the first time I really saw big groups of mathematicians. That's not completely true because when I was in honours, the University of Tasmania hosted the Australian Math Society, but I, I guess I was less embedded in sort of a mathematical research culture at that time, so I only took sort of peripheral notice of anything. I went to a few plenary talks and otherwise I didn't, really attend the conference but this was the first real conference that I attended I think if I'm not mistaken it was in Auckland at the University of Auckland it was in Auckland yeah yeah, yeah. it may have been the first um, time that Bernard Neumann hadn't didn't present the award as well so he wasn't um, able to travel to Auckland for some reason um, and um, so that was also a first but <laughs> maybe that one not such a good first did you know that at the time um, I wasn't aware of that at the time, but I was told, I think at the awarding cer ceremony, that it was maybe the first time that Bernard hadn't awarded the prize. But Have you met Bernard since? I only ever met Bernard once, and um, maybe, I'm not even sure if I met him directly or if I was just in the same room with him, but uh, yeah. So, did you think you were going to win? Um, no, I mean, I can't really recall thinking either way, but I knew that there was the B.H. Neumann Prize and that I knew I was a contender for this prize, and I did think I'd given a good talk. I mean, of course, um, one ends up giving a lot of talks and probably I've gone out of my way to give as many talks as I possibly can because I actually really like giving talks, so um, I give talks in seminars uh, very frequently, and some, of course, go a lot better than others. You know, sometimes you go away thinking, oh, that just didn't work. I thought I was trying to tell jokes and no one was finding them very funny. Or, And other times you go in with low expectations, not confident that it will work, and you come out feeling like maybe that one actually really did work. And I do recall thinking that the one that I gave in Auckland was actually a pretty good talk. So, um, so that's a start. But, um, I don't think I really thought I, I'd won. I hope it's not a... A bad thing to mention this, but um, in a breach of protocol, I was actually told privately that I had won before the announcement. And um, even though um, I don't think this is typically done anymore, I actually kind of appreciate being told. Um, I enjoyed having, I actually had a whole evening uh, where I had been, I knew I'd won this, um, but it hadn't been announced. I was told not to tell anybody. It was really quite fun to have this piece of information. I think I went out to the movies. There was a sort of an independent cinema and I went and watched a French film, um, feeling quite pleased with myself, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. I think back in those days, and this is just contextual gathering from people who I've spoken to, I think back in those days, it was more common to tell the winner in advance if they had feelings that the winner might not show up at the conference dinner. Uh, because at I think back then it used to be more often than not the conference dinner wasn't included in the conference registration or something uh, like that. That may have been the case. They probably could have trusted me in this case because being my first conference, I attended absolutely every single detail that I possibly could. Of course, it's parallel sessions and I wasn't able to attend parallel sessions at the same time, but um, I don't think I missed anything at the conference. Um yeah, whereas nowadays, perhaps I'm not quite so diligent. Um, apologies to anyone's talk who, who I've missed, but um, yeah, so I would have attended the conference dinner regardless, I'm sure. But um, yeah, that might have been um, a wise approach. 
I don't know who it was who told me. I, I, unfortunately, because it was uh, nowadays, I'd probably recognise the person from other Australian Math Society conferences. But it was an isolated event for me, as I, I said. So you have gone on to be on the judging committee for the Norman Prize many times in the past years, and in fact, you've chaired the committee a couple of times as well. What is that like, you know, having been a Norman winner and then being on the other side? Well, I think from memory, maybe Jackie Ramage was in charge when I won, and so when I was asked first to help out on the judging panel, uh, I was really greatly honoured, actually. Um, so I was really pleased. I thought it was actually a good thing for a prize winner to be sort of giving back a, a little bit. Um, so I was on there a few times. Um, I often organised the algebra session so at the conference for quite a few years in a row in the early, mid-2000s. And sometimes the session organisers were asked to provide input. And so it was a natural conduit, if you like, to move through to being on the committee. And then after a few years, I was asked to chair the committee, which was an even, well, I was, as I said, I was very honoured. And I did that for three years. The prize got really very large by that stage. At some stage during my time, it became optional as to whether you'd be judged. And so I think the last time that I ran it, even though there were more students than ever before, there were fewer students to judge than the previous year. But... It did make me, I guess it changed the way that I attended conferences. So I stopped attending as many talks that I would have otherwise attended because I felt there was a, an obligation to ensure that the, uh, the judging was really robust. I guess I'd felt that there were so many student talks that it was really very hard to choose a winner. And in fact, I would say it's impossible to choose a winner because there is no true winner. Um, there are usually at least 20 really solid talks that maybe could have won, depending on how enthusiastic a judge was at the time, and at least 10 of them are usually really fantastic, and five of them probably knock your socks off, um, but uh, who knows, because no one saw all five. The other thing you learn is, of course, what counts as a good talk to one judge isn't necessarily the same as to another judge, so that there's, of course variation to these kinds of things. So the way I would try to protect against that is to ensure that we had lots of coverage and lots of overlap. And I would usually, well, initially I sort of felt a little bit like I was sort of falling on my sword. Maybe that's not quite the right turn of phrase, but maybe sacrificing myself, I would just attend any talk in any area um, rather than trying to attend talks in my own area of expertise, just to ensure that we had good overlap. Later on, I decided that if there was any reason to believe that a talk was likely to be good, um, then I would try to ensure that we had extra overlap on those ones because I feel that when numerous judges seem to see the same good talk, then that can be a very useful comparison for other talks that by chance weren't, no, weren't expected to be good. It was some person that hadn't talked previously or just something which only had maybe two judges at it. But if those two judges had seen some other common good talks, then they could talk about whether or not they thought it was better than this one or, if, or at least make comparisons. It's wrong, of course, to talk about being better. Like with almost everything in life, uh, we constantly get trained to give things scores and really simple rankings, whereas in fact almost nothing except for trivial things like the height of a person um, is ordered as a sort of a linear order. Most things are much more complex than that. Um, it's actually a common misconception. A lot of people think mathematicians would like to be ranking things, and actually I think ranking is a particularly interesting topic in mathematics, but a mathematician would understand that ranking, of course, is thwart with, with problems and that it only gives a sort of a, a simplified perspective on things. And often at a university events when people are talking about ranking of publications of universities and things like this, while I like to offer suggestions for how this might be done, I always try and qualify everything with this idea that reducing things to a number or a linear rank like this is um, obviously quite misleading. And it's interesting how many non-mathematicians used to say, look, there's a mathematician saying this, as if that's somehow surprising to a non-mathematician, but I think a mathematician would understand that, of course, why should something which is complex and has a whole 
uh, spectrum of different facets to it, why would it make sense to be reducing it to a simple linear order of this is best and that was second best sort of thing? I mean, a good talk involves a good result. It involves um, a a sensible structure, maybe a a sort of of a story arc to the actual presentation, a good use of of materials and uh, a whole range of different, different aspects. So, um, of course, every talk can be different and it's very hard to compare someone who chooses to do a board talk, which just uses the most traditional of methods, some sort of pen and some sort of board. That's highly respected. Yeah, if you can pull off a really good board talk, that's something which people like, but it's hard to do really well. Um, and how do you compare that to someone who uses lots of really clever and innovative techniques and like um, uncoverings in a way that doesn't just distract but rather enhances a presentation. Those two things are just sort of um, sort of orthogonal approaches to giving a talk and they both could be really good and it's not clear why one would be better than the other. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of students, including myself, go into the OSMS meeting. By and large, we're aware of the existence of this prize, but I guess we don't really understand what a big deal it is. Like it's probably the prize that has the most number of people judging it compared to any of the other of the society's prizes, right? And, you know, it's only through doing this podcast I've sort of really gained an appreciation for what a big operation it is to choose a winner. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's terrible. I mean, possibly when I won it, it was small enough that um, maybe, <laughs> maybe the competition wasn't as tough. But I think anyone who wins it in recent times or even gets an honourable mention has clearly done a superb job. I do honestly feel a little bit bad for the many um, good talks that don't get honourable mentions nowadays. Um, of course, honourable mentions weren't, didn't come into play until the number of talks became quite large. So probably prior to honourable mentions becoming standard, there were probably talks that didn't get an honourable mention there because there weren't any honourable mentions that maybe would get an honourable mention today. But it is a little bit mean in a way to be um, for all those people who miss out and who could have actually given the prize-winning talk that just the judge that saw them or the judges that saw them somehow didn't click with them for whatever reason. There's no question that different people sort of like slightly different things. So, yeah, it's very hard to get a really competitive talk just because the competition is so strong. So who are some of the winning talks that you're responsible for? The winning talks that when you were the chair of the committee? Well, strangely enough, for most of the times that I was involved in the committee, so I think I've been involved maybe maybe six times or seven times, I'm not sure. I chaired three, I think. And out of all those times, uh, one of the winners was actually a student of my, my own, but I, I'm not sure. I certainly didn't judge the talk. Um, I can't remember if I saw it or not, but I, he had given it previously, so I had, had seen it, so I'm unsure. Of all the other times, there was actually only one instance where I actually attended um, any of the, the best talks, uh, um, or at least the talks that were in the final mix. So mostly I was left running this uh, <laughs> um, this competition with other people providing the main um, input. So... Uh, the only one where I actually did see the talk that won um, was a talk by Joshua Howie. I'd seen Joshua Howie speak before, um, and this particular on the on the same topic actually, but this particular presentation they were good talks too, of course. Um, this particular presentation I felt was a really uh, justified winner. I just hit the spot perfectly. Um, it was a talk on um, a, a really fantastic result in the theory of knots, knot theory. Yeah, so that's the only one that I really saw that was um, a winner. Other than that, the winner it was always someone whose talk I didn't see. <laughs> and I had to try and manage um, other judges and um, their differing opinions, but with no real input from myself. So you did bring this up, and I don't know if you know this, but as far as we have been able to tell... You are the only Neumann winner who is the supervisor to another Neumann winner. Oh. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. uh, so this is Murray David Neuserling in 2015. Yes. What was it like when he won? Well, uh, Murray really did give a very fine talk. In fact, I think that Murray puts the most thought into presenting the, of any 
uh, student or academic that I've seen. So it was a really very finely considered uh, presentation. So I don't think it was that surprising that it was at least a strong contender. So, yeah, I was really pleased. Yeah, so Murray also gave um, a three-minute thesis version of that material that also went uh, surprisingly well. So he didn't quite take out the La Trobe University prize, but um, he took out a sufficiently strong runner-up prize that they actually awarded him something like an equal prize money um, as a special one-off or something because they thought that it was so close or something like this. Um, so that was that was very good. And actually, it was a good example of how you can give a talk that ultimately was really a pure maths basis to the material, but that you could give a talk that could actually uh, be well understood by people, including in the three-minute thesis context where at the university level, that's all disciplines and, and still it was well-received, in fact, very well-received. It's also very useful. I'm the graduate or the director of graduate research in a, a school at La Trobe University, and um, I often raise the fact that we have had very successful contenders in this competition, the three-minute thesis competition, even from pure maths. So it's a good way to help encourage people that it doesn't matter what their topic is, they can find a way to put in some sort of uh, understandable presentation. So Marcel, how did you get into mathematics? It's a challenging question, actually, because I don't know if there was a single point or a series of gradual collapses toward mathematics. So I was never some sort of mathematical prodigy or anything like that, but I was a strong student in maths always, and I always enjoyed maths. It wasn't really until probably second year university where I found that Mathematics became a little bit more interesting to me. I guess the as anyone who has studied some university mathematics knows that in around second year university, then you start to see a whole range of topics that really start to diverge away from the sort of basic high school style mathematics um, around functions of numbers and calculus and things like that. And actually, I hold those topics or a high degree of interest in those classical topics. Anyway, but um, to me, it was more abstract concepts um, that really started to get my interest. And then I think that was the first step. Um, Then when I hit honours, my life just sort of changed in an instant. At that point, I sort of, in many respects, I kind of became a mathematician at that point, although, of course, it's too early to, to really say that. But I became really quite obsessed with mathematical research at that point, um, and probably uh, worked really quite hard trying to solve various problems on the topic that I'd been given, which was remarkably successful. So while perhaps it was a topic that was quite amenable to original work, uh, I suppose I did quite a good job on it in the end, mostly through just totally immersing myself in every possible detail of what I was doing. And so in that sense, That's what doing mathematics research has always meant to me, and that was the point in which that changed. But I was already fully committed to doing maths as an undergraduate by that point anyway, but it really changed. Prior to that, I did lots of other things, and my studies were somewhat secondary to other activities. But while I continued to do those other activities to a large degree, it was a sort of a shift in mindset in my honours year. So I'm sure we'll talk about those other activities a bit later on, but could you have been anything else? I mean, you you enrolled in a Bachelor of Science, right? So at that point, could you have been another type of scientist? Well, really for much of my high school years, so in Tasmania at the time, high school went to year 10 and year 11 and 12 was called college. Um, But for much of high school and even college, I was actually planning to go to the conservatorium for music. Um, So I was a little bit unusual, perhaps. I was somewhat obsessed with rather obscure sort of avant-garde experimental music when I was in high school. (laughs) I spent a lot of time reading about lots of things and experimenting with ideas, Um, nothing to do with mathematics, really. 
but I read a lot of the writings of John Cage and slightly strange things, I suppose, um, not particularly standard. I'm not sure when that sort of shifted. I was always really interested in science. So when I'd been in primary school, I always imagined myself a scientist, marine biologist, astronomer, geologist, all of these things. But I think when I went to university, I was probably imagining doing either marine biology or physics. But uh, for one reason or another, I think the strains of growing up matched with the strains of working and employment just really got the better of me a little bit. And I didn't really gel with the amount of electronics that was in physics. And just the general work day was a bit too much for me. I did a lot of walking, so I often would leave home quite early, arrive home quite late. And I didn't really, I enjoyed the um, zoology side of things, but um, somehow it just didn't quite work for me. And I had a bit of a personal crisis, you could even say. And mathematics was really one thing that stuck with me, and philosophy. So I did a, a major in mathematics and a major in philosophy. It was probably, um, I did actually quite a lot of mathematics, in fact, because to change to philosophy at the time within a Bachelor of Science meant that I had to still patch up quite a lot of extra science subjects, which I mostly patched up with mathematics. But uh, I ended up doing a bit more than what was the minimum requirement for a bachelor degree. But yeah, so I, I, I don't know. In some sense, I think depending on how things had flowed, I probably could have gone into a lot of different directions because I was, have always been interested in almost everything. I mean, it sounds a bit silly, but I mean, I worked as a cake decorator sort of casually, you know, sort of a pastry chef type of role um, for quite a while when I was an undergraduate. And actually, I often thought that if I couldn't get work in what I, the direction I was going, that I could probably have decided to go in that direction. I enjoyed the working in the kitchen. I enjoyed the people I was working with. It was actually quite creative, um, choosing different designs and things like this. <laughs> so <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah. So I guess honours is what hooked you into a PhD. Yeah, that's right. And you did your PhD with the late Peter Trotter. What was that like? Okay, yeah. So by the time I finished honours, I had just become so immersed in research. I, I wrote a, a research article during honours and uh, I guess I just didn't plan on stopping what I was thinking about. I um, had sort of changed topics slightly in my own mind. And I applied at a few different places and I would have been um, happy, I think, with any of them. One, strangely enough, was at La Trobe University where I now work. Another one was with Sheila Oates at uh, University of Queensland, and in the end, I, I guess I took the easy option and stayed in Tasmania. Um, it's probably better for students to move around. I'd like to see more movement of students at the PhD stage to different institutions, but um, I don't think it happens as much as it probably should. But nevertheless, I stayed in Tasmania, and I'm still satisfied with that choice, but I'm sure the other choices would have been excellent as well. Yeah, so I almost took no break. Um, I changed topics. I mean, it was a different topic and a different supervisor. But uh, the topic that I started working with under Peter Trotter was something I'd become interested in, which I'd noticed while I was doing my honours work. Um, and I was happy to shift to semi-groups. The other one was more universal algebraic, actually, under Barry Gardner, who primarily does ring theory, but has a sort of universal algebraic interests as well and wider interests. So I switched to semi-group theory and yeah, I suppose that really worked for me as well. So I immediately got really deeply into that research and I guess I had funded things for quite a while. Um, so it was quite a productive PhD, primarily around um, equational properties of finite semi-groups, but um, there were some other topics that I worked on as well. And in fact, my Norman Prize was really from one of them. It was a slight outlier in my thesis for the most part. Yeah, so it was good working with Peter. He was a great supervisor. Um, I guess the precise topic I was doing was not necessarily his main research um, area within semigroup theory, but he was an excellent supervisor and was always good at suggesting papers I might be interested in or giving feedback on my work. And um, yeah, it was, it was a very successful arrangement.
So we've talked a bit about your research through your talks and so on, but I guess now's the time to ask the proper question. And the way that I always raise this question with our guests is, if not you, but if I were at the pub speaking to a random person and they asked me, what is Marcel Jackson's research about? What does he do? What do you want me to tell them? Well, part of the problem with that is that I don't really like being pigeonholed too much. So if I took one of the topics that I like to work on, then that would already be a challenging question. Um, Like with much of pure maths um, or even applied maths, perhaps, if you try to explain that to a layperson, it's difficult. But I have always preferred to think of myself as someone who just does things Inevitably, of course, there are very strong themes to what you do, but I do work across quite a lot of different topics, and so it's hard to really pigeonhole it, but I sort of think of myself as a scientist of the abstract world, but it does centre around a lot to do with the mathematical understanding of processes in computer science, but it's sort of just misleading. It's It just misses out a lot of what I do. So I do parts of just abstract mathematics where the main motivation is because this is a an established and well understood international research area i have a strong appreciation of it and i understand many people across the world have a strong appreciation for it and i have a good intuition for what are the really interesting problems in the natural science of this area um, a bit more like astronomy like it's out there we can see those things or maybe we can't see those things because they're too far away but we understand that astronomers have been able to work out these amazing aspects of the universe. Well, as mathematicians, we understand that the abstract world has these, even if they're slightly less tangible or at least less concrete and physical, and we understand what are the really interesting things to find out. So some of my work is along those lines. Other ones is to do with trying to understand processes in computing or maybe alternatively to apply sort of computational concepts to aspects of mathematics. Those things are not that related. I mean, recently I did some work in mathematical biology, for example, which I think is another area which is not one that I really have expertise in, but um, working in a, a wider group perhaps. And I think that's another area which has nothing to do with the rest of my work, but is really interesting mathematically and just in terms of understanding things which has always been my primary. Making things and understanding things has always been my drive, I suppose. All right. So I'll tell that person at the pub that Marcel makes things and understands things. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe that's a really good way to sum it up. They'll probably want to know more or maybe they'll think it's a bit pretentious. (laughs) (laughs) So I have a look at some of your publications. And yeah, I could see that a lot of your work has to do with computer science. But my impression is that it doesn't have to do with computer science in the way that we normally imagine, because I don't think you code, like that's not primarily what you do, at least. That's correct, yeah. I mean, I do do a tiny bit of coding, but really I don't do much in my main work. And you mentioned algorithms quite some time ago now, but it's not like you're designing algorithms. That's also not your primary work. That's my understanding. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's probably fair to say. I mean, I am interested in aspects of algebra in particular, but mathematics more generally, and their algorithmic solvability, which can involve an interest in in the idea of efficient algorithms for things. But it's true that I haven't really done a huge amount of specific algorithms more at a theoretical level. But I made uh, a number of uh, short videos that were on iTunes U Um, a number of years ago, I probably would like to do more if I could find time. Um, And in those, I tried to get at sort of a general interest version of the kinds of things I thought people should know. So while I don't like to be categorized, it's inevitable that I could be called an algebraist because a lot of my work does involve algebra in one way or another. But to me, if you were to tell that to someone in the pub, that they would get completely the wrong idea because I think that the high school understanding of algebra is so specific and so particular that it doesn't really reflect at all the kinds of things that I find interesting. Um, So in the case of modelling of programs, for example, 
programs and just general instructions, for example, they have their own algebraic properties. And so even if just something like the if-then-else construction, which is one that's been popularly uh, investigated in theoretical computer science for quite a while, that has its own little rules. So you can make up a statement with if-then-else and you can see that it might be equivalent to some different statement involving if-then-else, but somehow turned around a little, a little bit. A bit like if it's raining, I'll stay inside, otherwise I'll go outside. It's a bit like saying if it's not raining, I'll go outside, otherwise I'll stay inside. Yeah, those statements are equivalent. And so that's a sort of a, an abstract equivalence. It doesn't need to be about raining. You could express that just in terms of an abstract logical statement. Something is either true or false, um, in which case it has its own little algebraic rules. So understanding rules of various aspects of programming languages has been a, a long-standing topic in theoretical computer science. There's a whole lot of logics um, associated with modeling program correctness and uh, things like that, um, which usually involve setting up abstract frameworks, a bit like, say, Boolean algebra it might be used to study just propositional logic, logic so the, the most simple-minded logic of true and false using ands, ors, and nots, where every statement is either true or false, and we have ways of discussing these and manipulating expressions that we typically teach at um, a first-year discrete math subject, but you might see also at high school level perhaps, and certainly um, we use little bits and pieces of when we actually program, that these kind of abstract rules extend then to not just things that are true, but things that whose truth might change under the action of something like a computer program. So something that might be true at one point won't be true in the future. So there's various sort of logics associated with these. And when you have logics, you very frequently have algebraic versions of these. And these often connect through, in some way or another, um, I find, to semigroup theory, which is where I originally started. So while I only do a small amount of my work in nowadays in classical semigroup theory, um, I do do a bit, um, I still find a lot of connections with almost everything that, that I do. I could say also on the topic of um, computer science, another thing I'm very interested in is computational complexity. So I think this is an area which holds a myriad of unsolved problems, the most famous of which is the P versus MP problem. And I strongly consider this to be perhaps the single foremost unsolved problem in abstract science. It's really just a representative of a whole family of problems. Um, I mean, there's lots of other complexity classes beyond just the P and the MP in that statement, where we also don't know if they're equal or not equal. But really, there's so little known, and yet so much quite deep and, and technical theory developed, that the lack of understanding of some of these problems is, is just such a huge gap in humanity's understanding of abstract things. There's perhaps more important issues for humanity than solving P versus MP. But in the world of abstract science, I think there is no bigger problem in my, my view, or at least problems of that kind. So that's something I'm very interested in. And while I don't do a lot of, or really any true um, work on that problem, I do a lot of work um, relating to the theory of computational complexity, especially aspects that have um, found uh, where algebraic methods have found a lot of utility. So that's something that I've been quite interested in as well, which is sort of an independent part of theoretical computer science. And Marcel has a very good article about P versus NP on the conversation, by the way. I think everyone should go and check that out. Thanks. But, I mean, for me personally, right, when you talk about P versus NP, I really do believe you when you say like that's a huge open problem, something we don't know much about. But when we talk about the stuff you were mentioning earlier about like the logic of programming languages and things like that, right? Like a lot of us code, you know, and the programs seem to work fine. And even I find it hard to understand. Like, don't we know everything about that already? Well, yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. I suppose my interest in it is still quite theoretical, but there is quite a, a large body of work on verifying program correctness that is used in some situations. It's true that most of us, when we code, 
it's not so critical if the program doesn't work. It's more of a, of a frustration to us. But as I understand it, in certain industries, this is a little bit more serious, such as uh, maybe air traffic control or some medical contexts where you really do need to make sure um, sending an astronaut into space. It is sort of fairly fundamentally important that your program does what it's supposed to do. So I don't really know just how effective these processes and, and methods are, but there are more applied computer scientists who really do work on things like program verification. And, and as I understand it, there are commercial tools that will, with a significant effort, um, assist in verifying these kinds of things. Uh, but actually, most programs are filled with holes but, and, and gaps, I think. Most complex um, operating systems and things, of course, we expect there to be problems because we, we are trained to expect this because whichever platform you're using, they're always sending patches to correct gaps or things that are not working properly. So <laughs> we know that things don't work quite as they're supposed to, but that might be a big issue. Like most of us are happy to run a program, but if you said that, okay, if you – um, your life depends on it today, um, that if there is a glitch in this program, then maybe something might happen to you during the day, then maybe you'd start to be less uh, relaxed about that. But my work is more in trying to provide um, a rigorous, abstract foundation for that um, rather than actually solving such issues directly. There's a big advantage in, in actually having algebraic methods because they're often a lot simpler to apply and a lot more familiar, even if the precise algebraic rules may be a little bit different to the algebra of numbers that we learn at high school. It nevertheless has a sort of vaguely similar feel. So whereas sometimes pure logic approaches can be a little bit more abstract in appearance. You also mentioned about your recent work in mathematical biology. How on earth did you get into that? Uh, well, this is, has a very easy explanation. Uh, that my partner, Lucy Ham, um, works in mathematical biology. And so uh, I guess this is a product of lockdown that suddenly my office partner is my actual partner. And so it was only natural that we should work on a project together. <laughs> so maybe this comes out of Victoria's period of lockdown. It probably started before then, of course. Um, yeah, so this is naturally something, uh, I mean... Anyone who has ever learnt any uh, molecular biology would probably realise that it's kind of a little bit astounding. Um, I learnt um, the very basics of, say, genetics maybe when I was starting in maybe year, year 11 or 12 back in the 1980s. But the amount of progress that's happened since then, I, I was really amazed, A, that I remembered bits and pieces from <laughs> right back then, or maybe first year uni, I suppose. But B, also just how crazy things are at the sort of um, molecular level. And uh, oh, actually, I, I think it'd be, you'd be hard-pressed for anyone not to be somewhat intrigued and somewhat interested in seeing, given that there are some sort of mathematical ideas that, are started, that have started to be invoked in these areas, um, that it wouldn't be quite interested in following up. Uh, I think it's really astonishing what goes on at the level in every single organism, whether it be a blade of grass or a human being, just every single cell is just complex beyond comprehension. It's amazing it does what it does. I'm not an expert on these things, but I have over the past year or so um, <laughs> been learning lots. So. Yeah, I, I was going to say, as long as it was, I don't think the Melbourne lockdown was long enough to turn you into a full-blown mathematical biologist, right? So what part of that project did you do? Well, some of it was sort of, I, I guess, probability, um, playing with formulas. So um, we both worked very hard, actually, together on endless pieces of paper. In fact, we took a picture of all of our rough calculations trying to work out some annoying integral, which we were having trouble with, um, on some probability distribution. So I guess it was that kind of thing. I think we filled up an entire lounge room. We paved the whole floor with bits of paper <laughs> without working. Probably a more <laughs> someone who did integration um, a little bit more frequently may have not wasted so much paper, but um, so things like that. Um, sometimes a bit of coding. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of sort of conceptual design as well. Um, I, I suppose I became quite interested in the molecular side of things, and so 
together we put a lot of thought into uh, the processes that we're trying to look at and what you might be able to measure from them. Yeah, I guess I was involved to some degree in a lot of aspects of that project. I'd like to do more. It's fun. Marcel, you strike me as someone who can find enjoyment in anything. And your interests outside of mathematics, at least the ones that we know of, are really broad. Like, you you seem to be a very outdoors person, you know, like climbing and that sort of stuff. And you know, if you're into arts, you know, that, I guess another example of that is your past life in cake decorating. <laughs> um, and I think there's a very small amount of people in the world who think that mathematicians do nothing but maths. So I guess I've discovered through meeting lots of mathematicians that they tend to have lots of other interests outside mathematics, right? They're not these boring people. But I'm interested to know if you, know, you approach these hobbies or these things you're interested in outside of mathematics differently because you're a mathematician. Uh, well, perhaps a bit both ways. So I reckon that many people who have multiple interests will find some overlap. I remember when I was much more focused on music performance um, thinking that there was quite that was quite similar to rock climbing in the sense that you might have if you're practicing so I used to play the viola primarily um, unfortunately I don't really play enough nowadays to say that I play the viola but I used to think of you know certain parts are more routine and there's bits that you know you're going to have trouble with and um, have to concentrate a bit more and and then Maybe with climbing, you might try and think of there's a difference between climbing something elegantly versus climbing something in a way that succeeded but was quite rough. And that might be true also for playing a piece of music. And all of those are valid comparisons, actually. But so I think people will look for things that are, are similar. In the case of my interests, I'm not sure why I have so, as many interests, but. As I do, but um, it is a little bit of a problem for me. I sometimes feel a bit frustrated and perhaps somewhat arrogantly think that I probably deserve an extra day of the week. I've always been thinking of a good name for this extra day of the week, an eighth day, that I can just, that people who have too many things that they need to and have to do with their lives, and when I say have to do, I mean have to in the sense that they, it's an important part of what they want to do, um, not because someone's telling them they have to that they should deserve an extra day, but I'm not quite sure how that's to be awarded. Um, anyway, in some sense, um, this might just be a, a natural thing in my case, but perhaps growing up in Tasmania might have played a, a bit of a role in this. Neither of my parents are mathematically inclined at all. Um, so my father was an art teacher and I guess an artist. So I, I sort of grew up in a sort of an art-minded household to some extent. My mother was also a teacher in English and social science and very supportive. So I think they encouraged people to, to think about things. Um, I also think particularly my father was a climber, a rock climber, from very early days, I guess, from the 1960s and perhaps even quite an influential climber in the early days of climbing in the state of Victoria and then subsequently in the state of Tasmania. And when you grow up in Tasmania, it's a place that's, A, it's at the end of the world. Yeah, there's nothing further south or no inhabited area further south. I mean, there are places that are, have um, lower or higher, I guess, negative lower uh, latitude, but um, certainly it's sort of like the end of the world. And this gives a sense of exploration. When you live in Hobart, which is where I grew up, um, if you walk from the city centre for 15 minutes, you'll start to encounter areas like South Hobart where you start to get trees on the side of the beautiful Mount Wellington. And you can walk up Mount Wellington. It's quite an adventure. It's, you know, 1,270 metres or something like that. It's quite a solid walk. And it would be a bushwalk. And in principle, you could continue and actually, there's nothing, if you go directly west from Hobart, there's nothing other than wilderness, which is kind of pretty amazing when you think about it. This is a capital city, and there is one road. You cross Scott's Peak Dam Road at some point, um, but you would be several days into a horrendous journey of bush bashing 
Um, but of just pure wilderness, there's a number of very beautiful mountains like Mount Anne that are directly west of, of Hobart. This has got nothing to do with maths really, except for the fact that it means that this is a place where genuine discovery and exploration can be felt. And when I used to do a lot of rock climbing in Tasmania, we almost only ever did our own explorations. We found new cliffs, or if there were cliffs that weren't new cliffs that other people had been to, we did new climbs that people hadn't climbed before. And I guess I grew up in a family where we always tried to do interesting explorations. And in particular, my father was very keen on a sense of space and understanding. And it was almost like a a poetic understanding of space and, and discovery and feeling. And I actually feel that this maybe just pervaded every aspect of my life so that everything became about understanding something and exploring something and just following a path that was sort of fresh, I guess. And I think maybe that was an influence over my mathematics, but it may have been an influence over other aspects of what I do too. So the artistic aspect of things, I mean, I don't really do enough to to really call myself an artist or anything, but I do do quite a lot of little bits and pieces of art, and I always have, uh, whether they be sculptures or, or, or drawings or conceptual art even, which I used to do a bit more of, um, just in private. But that's probably just because my father always did art, and, um, and he did a range of different art styles. So, for example, he used to do very fine line drawings of cliffs for climbing guides, and I felt that his were the best that I'd seen. So I felt that I had some responsibility to <laughs> practice up this a little bit myself, maybe just out of respect for the fact that he did a good job of it and maybe I could at least approximate something like that. But that's just a very particular thing, I suppose. Um, yeah, so I don't know. We just did a lot of things, a lot of outdoor things, and it was a creative household and a supportive one. So, yeah. One thing I've particularly noticed in the past few years is that a lot more mathematicians than one would expect are into climbing or bouldering or stuff like that. And I know you're into that as well. And I'm just wondering if there's any explanation for that. Uh, or Maybe you, you observe that as well. Well, yeah, there's a long tradition of this because for me, a big influence, not mathematically at all, was someone called John Gill. So John Gill was a, an early, well, a mid-20th century climbing figure who was perhaps the world's first true boulderer. So he only really did bouldering in the US. And it was sort of an influence on me. I liked the fact that he'd sort of done his own thing, which appealed to me. So he'd done bouldering at a time where bouldering wasn't necessarily the thing that people did. Um, he also was quite inventive. He was the person who originally, as far as I understand it, introduced gymnast chalk to climbing, which is now uh, a very widely used sort of a tool, I guess you could say. He invented the one-finger chin-up, which I never mastered. It's not the one finger. It's the fact that you've got to use one hand, and I never quite mastered the one-hand chin-up, but um, one finger is mostly for show. Um, it's not that much harder, I don't think. Um, Anyway, it's just an inventive approach to things, and I really liked this. So in, even in my own adventuring, we did a lot of um, unusual activities where we tried to go, okay, well, we like climbing, but we also like these other things, so maybe we'll try and find a way to mix them. And so we really, my brother and I in particular, really pushed a few other ideas like coastal traversing, which sort of mixed swimming in coastal areas with climbing above the water, and things like this. Um, why mathematicians and what's this got to do with John Gill? Well, someone once suggested to me that this was because John Gill was a mathematician, but and I didn't mention that before because actually I wasn't even at least consciously aware of this. So I don't know, but it turned out that a lot of what he did was when he was a PhD student in Colorado um, in, in mathematics. I think he did um, some sort of number theory, maybe continued fractions or something like this. So there does seem to be sort of an interesting tradition here. And I actually think maybe the inventiveness and the originality of what John Gill was doing in the climbing context maybe is the kind of thing that you see with mathematical research. I also think that climbing can be a really social activity. It's really fun to go to a climbing wall or to a cliff. 
with other people. It's a, definitely a very social sport, but the actual act of climbing is incredibly um, solitary, especially some forms of climbing, but there's a lot of focus and very precise dedication, even for a short amount of time. There has to be a full commitment of mind and body to this. And I actually think that perhaps mathematical research requires some sort of vaguely similar mindset where you really have to be able to in, immerse yourself deeply into a, a mathematical problem, sort of a problem solving that, again, can be social. It's, of course, great fun working um, collaboratively with a blackboard. Blackboard, one or two good collaborators, that's like a mathematician's dream. Whiteboard with one or two good collaborators, that's sort of almost a mathematician's dream. Blackboard's better. <laughs> Most of us nowadays only have whiteboards, unfortunately, so we have only half good dreams. But yeah, that works really well. But of course, a lot of the, a lot of the way that works is bits and pieces are nutted out and then eventually um, people go away and they go, oh, hang on, we were just about there on this. And that's the part where it starts to become where you are inside your own head and doing that maths problem. And I think that's maybe similar to the focus that's required for climbing. I'm not sure if it's just mathematics, though. I see a lot of people at climbing walls who are just research scientists in, in general. So maybe, maybe it is that just sort of creative research type of idea. I'm not sure. Otherwise, yeah, it's a bit confusing. I'm not quite sure why there might be a theme, but... I was at the climbing wall yesterday and I saw some, some mathematics people. So <laughs> We hear lots of stories of like our undergrads bumping into their lecturers <laughs> at the climbing gym or something like that. Yeah. I think one thing you said just now that sort of really struck me was that it's social and solitary at the same time. And that sounds really contradictory, but also I kind of also get it. Well, I, I think that, as I mentioned, Certainly, face-to-face collaboration with a researcher is very much like this as well. There's a social aspect, but in my experience, which I think is actually, in that case, fundamental to making progress. Yep. So almost anyone who's been involved in mathematics collaboration will understand the benefit of working with someone who maybe brings slightly different skills. They just have a different brain. It might be just some subtle difference in the way they do things. They might have otherwise similar skills, but to have two or more people working things out is absolutely fundamental. I guess it's not completely necessary in all cases, but it's a fantastic way to to make enormous progress. But that progress always comes with a separate part where those individuals went away and really nutted something out properly and checked something um, and maybe took it that little extra bit. And I think, I mean, maybe it's a superficial similarity, but certainly when you're climbing in a social context, there's a lot of this as well, and, and bouldering is particularly like this. So this is, for people who don't know, where you climb sort of unroped, but usually above matting, uh, soft mats, uh, quite short problems. So you can jump off and hopefully not hurt yourself, and typically not hurt yourself, which should be rare to hurt yourself. Um, but there's a lot of problem solving here. And when you climb in a social context, aside from chatting about the weather or which um, you know, restaurant you might be going to or whatever or some work-related thing, um, a lot of that chat is about how you might do this problem. And climbing walls actually love to have sometimes even have themes about problem solving. They'll have a bit of a theme to the kind of problem solving that you might be having to do. And people go, no, that's, that's just not working for me. Is there another way to do it? And so, well, maybe you could do this. You know, I mean, it might be a superficial similarity, but to me that is actually quite a similar thing to, to mathematics. I'm not sure it's what draws people to climbing mathematically inclined people to climbing or not. Uh, I personally think it might be just the intensity of, it's sort of simultaneously different, but, but similar. And so it gives the people who like that kind of thing will like this one, but it's a, a sort of a, a contrast that can balance against the mathematical or more formal side of things. No, that's really interesting. So I guess this is when I ask you the question that we ask all of our guests at the end of the episode. Uh, which is to complete the sentence, a mathematician is someone who? A mathematician is someone who... Um, <laughs> okay. Well, actually, a mathematician is someone who does a lot of things, which isn't my answer. But the point being is that there are 
many answers to that question, all of which are, or many of which are, are very good, and I fear many of which have already been given. So I, I think I'll probably unanswer the question in a sort of a self-referential kind of way and say that a mathematician is someone who takes a question like this one in the direction that is that it should be taken as appropriate to the context. Um, because that's sort of what we do. We shouldn't be bound by a fixed answer to a question. A big part of the creative mathematical process, be it pure math, supply math, statistics, any kind of mathematical sciences, a big part of the creative mathematical process is taking questions and having an understanding for how they should be moved and, and taken in a given direction. Also, thanks to Marcel for doing this interview. To find out more about Marcel, you can visit his webpage linked in the show notes. This episode was produced by Tiana Sang An and myself. We'll be back soon with another interview. Neumann Talk is a podcast produced by students and staff from the School of Mathematics and Statistics at UNSW Sydney and hosted by me, Yudi Bunyamin. Follow UNSW Maths and Stats on Facebook or Instagram to see updates on the latest episodes as well as other exciting news from our school. If you've been listening to our podcast, then we'd love to hear from you. Send me a tweet or a message on Twitter at Yudi underscore Bunyamin. Let us know who you are and if there's something one of the winners talked about that really resonated with you, or even if you have any questions about mathematics of your own.